Well, do keep your Bibles open at John chapter 3. Our forefathers in the faith used to sometimes speak about someone closing with Christ. And I think what they meant by that is, if you can imagine a scenario of reaching a deal of Uh, after a period of negotiation and discussion and perhaps debate, ultimately coming to a point of decision, closing the deal, making it definite and irreversible. Of course, the language of closing the deal doesn't totally describe what it means for someone to come to Christ. It omits the electing work of God the Father. It omits the drawing work of God the Holy Spirit who comes and brings us to Jesus It omits the gift of spiritual life and the gift of faith for us to believe. But from a human point of view, from the perspective of our experience, this does describe what for many people is the process involved in coming to faith, the journey towards faith in Jesus, which at times for many people is long and protracted. This man, Nicodemus, appears out of the blue in this story. He's a man of some importance, of significance, whose faith in Jesus is partial and imperfect. Look at what we're told about him. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and he came to Jesus by night. Why do I say that his faith is imperfect and partial? Well, if you notice what he says to Jesus, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The measure of his faith was based on the signs that he had seen. And if you look at chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, in the context of this man coming to Jesus, you'll notice that there's a reference to these signs. Let me read it to you. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, we're told. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. He did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, what we've discovered already in John's gospel, if you can remember that far back, is that these signs display something of the glory of Jesus. They're supernatural. They're miracle. They're they're taking something natural and transforming it, turning Water into wine was a very significant miracle. It was an act of power. It was an act of creation. But also we've discovered that though they display God's glory, sometimes the signs are a stepping stone in the journey to faith. They were for Jesus' disciples. They saw the signs, they believed in Jesus, and they followed Jesus. The test of their faith was that they came out openly and they followed Jesus. Signs can lead to genuine disciple faith. But seeing the signs in and of themselves, seeing these miracles, these wonders that Jesus performed, do not necessarily lead to true and saving faith. You can see that in Jesus' response at the end of chapter 2 there. Uh, He, we're told, Jesus didn't believe those who believed in him, literally. He didn't believe those who believed in him. He was reserved with these people. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus warns us not to trust everyone equally. There are some people around whom you have to be on your guard with. 
He talks about casting your precious stones before the pigs or giving what is holy to the dogs. In other words, be discerning. Be discerning. Make a difference because not everyone is ready to receive what you have to give. And Jesus understood that. But he understands it because we're told he understands us. He understands our nature. He is cautious around certain people. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't, didn't let these people follow him. Didn't mean that he didn't let these people come around and listen to what he had to say. It just means that he wasn't impressed with those who were impressed with his miracles, period. Being impressed with his miracles, period, was no guarantee that they would ever follow him in the long term. Just as today there are people who are attracted to Jesus when he speaks of heaven or he speaks of love or prosperity or joy, whenever he talks in those terms or is presented as talking in those terms, no one is offended and they're ready to follow him. But once you come across Jesus' hard sayings, then they turn away and they go in their own direction. We've got to be cautious, don't we, before we rush to pronounce such people Christian before we see evidence of sound faith in Christ. And at the end of chapter 2, I want you to see that there's a lot made of Jesus' basis for his judgment. He didn't base this on intuition. Some of us base a lot of our assessment of people on the fact that we think we can measure them up. We sense what they are. We have intuition. I've never been wrong about someone, people will say to you. Well, very often, of course, they have been wrong about something. They just, someone they just don't admit it or don't recognize it. No, Jesus is not acting on intuition here. You notice what we are told about him. He himself knew. He knew what was in man. That is, like God who knows all things and reads the hearts of people, John is saying Jesus had the same as God. Jesus is acting as God here. And John's readers would not have missed this affirmation of Jesus, full deity here. He shares the Father's omniscience. He is, has supernatural insight, not only here into Nicodemus, but later in chapter 4 into the heart of a Samaritan woman, and later still into a Gentile official, and later still into a crippled man. He sees deeper. He sees right into our hearts and minds. There's no fooling Jesus. He knows us. He knows us through and through. And it's, it's against this background then that we're introduced to this religious leader. Against that background where Jesus is not impressed by those who are impressed with his miracles. Nicodemus comes to him to talk about the fact that he is impressed with Jesus' miracles. Look at him more closely. He is from Jerusalem. The meeting takes place in Jerusalem. He is orthodox. He is conservative. He is nationalistic. He is a Pharisee, in other words, and he's a ruler of the Jews, which means he has political connections. He is on the Sanhedrin. In other words, what he represents is official Judaism. He represents the establishment. But unlike the majority of those in the establishment, the one thing that distinguishes Nicodemus, as we see, is that he has been convinced that the miracles have happened, that they are the works of Jesus, and that they tell us something significant 
about Jesus. That sets him apart from all these other religious teachers. He comes to Jesus by night. Maybe because it was the end of a busy day and that was the best time to catch someone who is a busy man in order to have a decent conversation. Perhaps, perhaps to avoid being seen by others, keeping his interest in Jesus as below the radar as he possibly can. Some have pointed out that there may be a symbolic aspect to this, because in John's gospel there is symbolism of light and darkness and so on, and maybe this has something to do with that. I'm not persuaded, I'm not persuaded against that idea either, but there's no doubt that perhaps what we're meant to see is that as this gospel develops, this man comes out of darkness increasingly into light. Maybe, maybe. Jesus knew the inadequacy of Nicodemus' faith. John will contrast this slow response of Nicodemus to the Samaritan woman's quick response when she discovers that he is a prophet. She wants to go and tell everybody, come and see someone who told me everything I ever did. He could be the savior of the world. Come, come and see him. Her response is immediate. It's quick as soon as she discovers who Jesus is. Nicodemus comes, and it's still quite ethereal, still quite intellectual, still quite a subject for debate and discussion. Uh, Master, I'd like to talk about these miracles that you've obviously performed. That tells us that you are a teacher come from God. What he's doing is he's keeping Jesus at a distance. But he's also doing something positive. He's already realized that these miracles, these actions of Jesus are meant to point us to Jesus. I see these miracles, he says, and I see that they make me think about who you are. They make me consider who you are. You are a teacher come from God. Dr. Griffith Thomas once defined Christianity like this. He titled it the name of a book, which I have in my library. Christianity is... Christ. Christianity is Christ. It it invariably raises issues that point us back to the person of Jesus. John Newton, who wrote many of our hymns, wrote one hymn that we don't sing, but we should perhaps try to sing it. An old hymn. I'm not sure what tune it goes to, but I do know the words. What think ye of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. That is, where you stand in your relationship with God and how you think about your relationship with God. You cannot be right in the rest, he says, until you think rightly of him. As Jesus appears to your view, as he is beloved or not, so God is disposed towards you, and mercy or wrath is your lot. What Newton is saying, what Thomas is saying is that Christianity is Christ. Nicodemus recognizes that these signs that Jesus performed raise the issue of Jesus. Who are you? These signs indicate to me, he says, that you are somehow from above. You have been sent from God. You're a teacher. Come from God. God is with you. That's what he says. In other words, he's making a step in the direction of the light. He's beginning to understand, though he doesn't say anything else. Nothing else, he says, seems to indicate much progress, but he's got that to that point. 
that he recognizes that Jesus is at the center of the question. He's at the center of the issue. So he says a lot, and he says nothing. And the contrast is very stark, uh, stark as you read this section, these opening verses of chapter 3. Here is a man who's described in verse 10 as the teacher of Israel. In other words, a, a theologian of great importance and rank, the teacher of Israel. And the teacher of Israel cannot understand heavenly realities. And then here you have this man sent from God who reveals God, who reveals God to this man, who unlocks the Scriptures for this man. He isn't an authorized rabbi. He is not credentialed. But here he is and he unlocks the teaching of the Scripture for the mind of this man, this great theologian to whom he is speaking. Now, I want you to notice the other thing that uh, Nicodemus recognizes about Jesus is that he sees the connection between these signs and wonders and the prophetic role, the prophetic role of the Old Testament. Uh, if you had asked the people of Jerusalem in Nicodemus's day, are there any prophets going around? He would have said no. If you had asked, why is that? He would have said, well, there are no signs and wonders that demonstrate the position of the prophet, the work of the prophet. And suddenly Jesus is going around doing signs and wonders. And Nicodemus knows enough of his Bible to know that only prophets do signs and wonders. They're the authenticating marks of a prophet sent from God. That makes him think. That's what makes him think. No one can do these signs unless God is with him. He sees a lot, but it doesn't see enough. What will Jesus do? What will Jesus do? Well, Jesus simply say, well, that's, that's great. You know, I, I'm really encouraged by the progress you've made. You know, come on, and it's okay. You can come and s sit down and be part of the fellowship here, and we'll go on together and so forth. Is, is that enough? Is that enough? You know, what Jesus does is he challenges the man. He presses the man further into the truth. So far, Nicodemus can see signs and wonders, but Jesus says, I want you to consider more. I want you to consider whether or not you can see the kingdom of God. Look at what he says. He talks about the kingdom, and he talks about seeing the kingdom and entering the kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, in other words, raising this issue, raising it, ramping it up in its importance. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, I think, from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's drawing a a line, you see, a sharp contrast between this man's human understanding and divine revelation. He knows what this teacher does not know. And because of what he knows, he knows that general praise, being damned with faint praise, will not do when it comes to describing or approaching Jesus. It will not do. General praise will not do when it comes to Jesus. So he goes beyond the signs and he says, what are these signs demonstrating? They are demonstrating the presence of the great king. Think about your Bible, Nicodemus. Think about what was actually happening when Elijah and Elisha were performing 
all those signs and wonders. When Moses was performing signs and wonders, consider, it was the evidence that the great king, the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, the great king and his kingdom were present in power to subdue enemies, to demonstrate the power of the king. Consider that. Now, this use of the kingdom here is unusual in, in John's gospel. John tends to focus on the person of Christ, who is the Lord from heaven, the revealer and the bringer of the kingdom. But the background, of course, is the background I've just painted for you, the Hebrew scriptures, which emphasize that God is king, sovereign over all the earth, and his reign extends to every creature under heaven. The Jews expected the kingdom to come. They wanted a kingdom. They looked for a kingdom that was promised in their scriptures. The son of David reigning, the, the Lord's servant reigning. Indeed, the Lord himself reigning on earth in a kingdom. And so here he is talking about seeing the kingdom in the sense of grasping it. Do you get the kingdom? You cannot get the kingdom without being born from above. Now, in John's gospel, the G Jesus' kingdom is not from this world. That's chapter 18, verse 36. His kingdom comes from above. So only those who are born from above can understand, can see, can grasp the kingdom of God. Uh, we're used to this expression, of course, born again. And uh, perhaps the best translation, in fact, is to be born from above. And that's what Nicodemus misunderstood. And that's what Jesus presses upon him. This heavenly birth experience, this breaking in of the new creation that you find the language of all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, in Isaiah 50, 65, verse 17, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. There's a new creation, and the new birth is part of that new creation that God promises. The new creation involves the necessity of new birth, being born from above. So Jesus says, unless you are born from above, you cannot grasp the kingdom of God. And as if to demonstrate that that is absolutely true, as if to demonstrate in real life and in this interaction with this man that without this heavenly recreation in your heart and mind, you cannot see it, as if to demonstrate that, listen to the theologian's response. Listen. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Maybe he's been ironic. Maybe he's, you know, winding Jesus up. Maybe he's expecting Jesus to give a negative answer. Of course you can. But what it demonstrates is, here's a man who's reached the boundaries of his knowledge. He has reached the end point of what he can take in at this moment. He can't get what Jesus is getting at. He does not see the kingdom of God. He does not see it. He doesn't get it. 
And this idea of people being blind to spiritual realities, of course, has its roots in the Old Testament. We were looking at it in Isaiah this morning, where people are blinded by God, a hardening that, that had taken place as God blinds the mind so people cannot see the glory there is in Jesus. And in fact, Paul says in, in Corinthians, the God of this age blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of Christ. Can't see it. Well, having spoken about seeking the kingdom, Jesus then goes on to talk about entering the kingdom. Nicodemus becomes unnecessarily pedantic here. How can a man be born when he is old? Perhaps he's getting exasperated. He certainly isn't understanding. Here is the teacher of Israel, and now he's stumped. He's a student now of Christ. He's humbled. And actually, he disappears from the story at this point. Now, this language then that Jesus now goes on to use <coughs> of being born again or literally born from above most likely points in the direction, as I've said, of the new creation promised in the Hebrew Scriptures and the resurrection at the end of history. The Old Testament's full of this. And I think that's why Jesus says to Nicodemus, none of this should stump you if you've got your Bible. None of this should be tripping you up because you should know these things. That's why in verse 7, he's, there's some irony in Jesus saying, or being said that Jesus was marveling at the fact that he didn't know. You don't know this. You should know this. You should have understood this. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Verse 10. Jesus qualifies what he means by new birth. Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see, born from above means to be born of water and spirit. Get that. That's the connection. To be born from above means to be born from water and spirit. Well, what does that mean? It's a very good question. You could write a PhD thesis on what that means. There are all kinds of uh, ways in which you can understand it. Is, uh, is this a reference to natural birth and spiritual birth, for example? Being born of water and then being born of the Spirit. Is it a reference to baptism? I, I notice I think many of the modern commentators refer it to baptism, although perhaps to refer to baptism historically is to read in something that's in the future still at this point back into the text. That's only one view. I, I think that the water and spirit reference here is most likely taken from the Old Testament and is most likely taken from the book of Ezekiel. Because in Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, we find Ezekiel describing, using these two words in a description of what God is going to do in the last days. Let me, let me read to you from Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What was the great word that was given to Isaiah in Isaiah 6? Stop their ears, 
Cover their eyes. Don't let them understand. Don't let them see. And here's God's promise. There's coming a day when I will reverse that hardening. I'll deal with that hardness of heart. There'll come a day when I will overcome this judgment on Israel and Judah. I'll overturn that and I'll begin to deal with them and soften their heart. Give them a new heart. Not the hard heart that is firmly entrenched in its unbelief, but a heart that is responsive to God. I will put my spirit in you. I will make you live. I will bring you to new life, to new creation, so that you walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I think Jesus is referring in that direction when he talks about entering the kingdom of God. And you can see the little contrast that Jesus makes, by the way, in verse 6, when he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So what he's saying is, you see, that this is the Word of God being fulfilled. To be born from above means to have this congenital, judgmental hardening that has settled down upon official Judaism and people like Nicodemus and others that prevents them from seeing the kingdom of God, this hardness, this hardening will be taken away. God will intervene. And He will help them to see once and for all. And it will be the Spirit that does it. Look at Going back to Ezekiel again. In Eze that was Ezekiel 36. If you go to Ezekiel 37... Ezekiel expands that picture of, of the future, and he talks about the wind, this, the pneuma, the, the spirit, the spirit of God. You know the same word counts for wind and for spirit. And in the same passage, we're told this, we're told that God said to Ezekiel, prophesy, prophesy to the breath, to the spirit, to the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain. You remember the picture? It's the valley of dry bones. They spread out a great army and they're dead and the bones are there being bleached by the sun. And Ezekiel comes along and he preaches to the bones and they come together. They come together and they reassemble. And there's a whole knoll of noise as they're all reassembling into their various parts and bits are being put back into place. And then he preaches again to the bones and they're covered with flesh. And then he's to preach again to the bones. And this time, this time, it's not only bones together and flesh covering them. This time, there is life in them. Born again. Born from above. Born by the Spirit. By the Spirit, the breath of God that brought life at the first creation brings life at the second creation. In chapter 37... Here's what God says as His commentary. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my Spirit within you and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. One of the people who's written a lot about this is Greg Beale of Westminster, and he points out that the washing with water and the new creation by the Spirit in Ezekiel 36 are equivalent to the prediction of resurrection by the Spirit in chapter 37. 
Basically, the expectation was that when the kingdom of God came, there would be resurrection from the dead. And what Jesus explains in his ministry is that that resurrection, that coming of the kingdom, would be in two phases. The kingdom has come with Christ. Christ is the king. His kingdom is being established in the world as more and more people bow the knee to King Jesus, acknowledge him to be their Lord, and follow him, serve him, and pledge their allegiance to him. The kingdom is advancing as more and more people are joining it, being brought into the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is still despised. It's secret. It's a work of God in people's hearts and minds. It's not yet public. The king is not yet back. One day, the king will return and the kingdom of God will be public. Similarly, the kingdom of God, that reign that they look forward to in the future, was associated with resurrection. When the king comes, the dead will be raised. And Jesus doesn't say that's not going to happen. He says, yes, the dead will be raised. John's gospel is going to explain this. Later on, the dead will be raised. Jesus comes to raise the dead. But just as the kingdom comes in two parts, partially, now in the hearts and minds of those who submit to his authority, fully one day when he comes in power and glory, so resurrection comes in two parts. There is spiritual resurrection, and then there will be physical resurrection. And The spiritual resurrection that takes place when someone who has no thought of God, no love for God, no heart for God, cannot get the message about God, when that spiritual resurrection happens and people come to spiritual life, that spiritual resurrection is the guarantee that what God is about and has begun will be completed and that He will raise our mortal bodies one day, raise them from the dead and the new creation will be completed, finalized. You need to be born from above, Jesus says. It's absolutely indispensable. He says that to Nicodemus, and he says it to us. Without this heavenly birth, without this being born from above, this, this act of creation that produces within us faith so that we respond to God, that produces within us the ability to act and live in a way that pleases God. Without that supernatural action of God in our lives, we are still hardened as Israel was, distant as Israel was, separated as Israel was. And we need to be born from above. And it's not only necessary, it's gloriously possible because Jesus tells us that he will do this. Now, can I say this? The, the, the new birth is not something you decide, I'm going to, get new, I'm going to be born again today. That, that, that is not what you do. What happens is this. I say to you, do you believe in Jesus? Are you resting on Jesus alone for your salvation? Are you trusting in him alone for your salvation? You cannot do that unless you've been born again. The new birth demonstrates itself in people getting their heads around who Jesus is, not just a teacher come from God, someone whom God is with, but this is God with skin on, God in the flesh, God our Savior. That's how we know that we have come 
to life. And you notice the work of the Spirit is like the wind. He blows where He wills. He's entirely sovereign. He does as He pleases. He brings whoever He wills to life. He rejuvenates. He breathes new life into those who are dead and brings them into this spiritual new creation. He does that all by His own will. And so what we pray, you see, as we pray for our friends, as we pray for our city, as we pray for our country, as we pray for the world, is this, we pray, O Spirit of God, O Spirit of God, come, come. And when the Word of God is preached, O Spirit of God, please be present in the Word. May your breath, as it were, may your breath be felt as those words resonate against the eardrums of those that hear them. May the Spirit of God penetrate the hearts and lives of men and women, bringing them to new life in Christ. Spirit of God, attend our prayers and act, we pray, in Jesus' name. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you that uh, in the gospel of your Son there is this great and wonderful action that you take in the lives of people, enabling them to see and enter the kingdom of God, enabling them to see and experience the first stage of resurrection, the resurrection of the Spirit, and then to enjoy the resurrection of the body, entering into the kingdom now of God's people, secret and hidden from the world, but one day to be made gloriously manifest when Jesus returns. Help us to live, Lord, now in the present, grateful that our hearts have been cleansed by Your grace and filled with Your Spirit, and that now we're able, enabled to, to walk in Your statutes and to please You. We pray for You to draw near to us as we go out into this week uh, to face all kinds of challenges that are all particular and peculiar to each of us in our different stations in life. But help us to go into this week knowing that the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.